This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, December 10th. I'm Mary Margaret Olihan. And I'm Doug Blair. Young Americans regularly sing the praises of socialism. To many of them, the word means nothing more than free government-provided services like healthcare or college. But socialism is far more than what politicians like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez claim it to be. Daniel DiMartino, a Venezuelan native and public speaker, joins the Daily Signal podcast to share his story and how his country was driven to ruin by socialism. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Daniel DiMartino, let's hit the top news stories of the day. President Joe Biden pushed world leaders to bolster democracy during a virtual inaugural summit of democracy on Thursday. The Biden administration did not invite China, Russia, Turkey or Hungary to attend, and Biden did not take any questions from reporters. Here's Biden via Fox Business. Democracy is hard. We all know that. It works best with consensus and cooperation. When people and parties that might have opposing views sit down, and find ways to work together, things begin to work. Representatives from countries including France, Canada, India, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Japan, Israel, and the Philippines attended the meeting. In response to ongoing concerns surrounding the Omicron variant, on Thursday, the FDA authorized booster shots of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for 16- and 17-year-olds, making it the first booster shot in the U.S. authorized for people this young. In a statement announcing the authorization, acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock said, As people gather indoors with family and friends for the holidays, we can't let up on all the preventative public health measures that we have been taking during the pandemic. With both the Delta and Omicron variants continuing to spread, vaccination remains the best protection against COVID-19. Pfizer chairman and CEO Albert Borla reacted to the authorization as well, saying in a statement, Today's decision by the FDA to further expand the emergency use authorization of a booster dose of our COVID-19 vaccine is a critical milestone as we continue to stay vigilant in addressing the virus. Currently, the Pfizer vaccine remains the only one authorized for children over five. Parents of the two girls who survived the Oxford High School shooting in Detroit, Michigan, filed two $100 million lawsuits in federal court Thursday. The lawsuits accuse multiple school officials and staff of acting in reckless disregard for the victim's safety and ignoring blatant red flags about the shooter's dangerous behavior. Authorities charged 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly with murder and terrorism and his parents with involuntary manslaughter after Ethan opened fire at the school on November 30th. The shooting killed four students and left several others seriously injured. 17-year-old Riley was shot in the neck in front of her 14-year-old sister Bella, the lawsuit says. Under a new law proposed and likely to be passed in New Zealand, individuals born after 2008 will be unable to legally purchase cigarettes in their lifetime. If it passes, the legislation would begin rolling out restrictions in stages starting 2024, beginning with a reduction in the number of authorized sellers of tobacco products in the country. Next would be requirements in 2025 that would lower the amount of nicotine in tobacco products, which would all culminate in banning cigarette sales for those born after 2008. Here's New Zealand Associate Health Minister Aisha Viral on the plan via The Guardian. We know the majority of smokers want to quit, but they can struggle to do so on their own. 
This plan builds on the good work of QUIP programmes by drastically reducing the availability of cigarettes, by making them less addictive, and by introducing a smoke-free generation, which will mean that no one aged older than 14 at the time the planned legislation comes into force will ever be able to legally purchase cigarettes. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Venezuelan public speaker Daniel DiMartino as we discuss how socialism destroyed Venezuela. I'm Zach Smith. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It's SCOTUS 101. Our guest today is Daniel DiMartino, a Venezuelan-born freedom activist who speaks about his personal experience with the terrible consequences of socialism, as well as a senior contributor at Young Voices. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doc. Let's start with your story. It is a very powerful story because you were born in Venezuela and you came to the United States when you were younger uh, and, and got to experience both worlds. So can you tell us a little bit about that transition from Venezuela to the United States? Yeah, so um, I'm 22 years old, uh, almost 23. I uh, was born in Venezuela, lived there until I was 17 uh, when I finished high school there. And then I moved to the U.S. to Indiana uh, five and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in 2016. And it was a total change, right? Because in Venezuela, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for having been able to, to come to America because in Venezuela, I would never have had the opportunities that, I, that I've had in this country. Um, you know, from incredibly high crime, Caracas, where I where I was born and mm. where, where where I lived most of my life, um, was the city with the highest murder rate on the planet. Wow! Um, in Venezuela, about thirty thousand people get killed every year of of murder. My aunt got kidnapped one time, and and when she went to report the the kidnapping in the police station, one of the police officers was one of the kidnappers. Oh, oh my God! The the police is the one that commits the crimes in Venezuela. Well, I mean, some of of those, and. And so it's a dangerous country. It's a country re- destroyed by by socialist policies. So there's, you know, you it's very hard to find food, very hard to find basic necessities. So you have to make lines for hours. You have to bribe people. You have to be corrupt. It's it's not a good place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's why I'm very grateful to to have in been able to to come to America. So when you left Venezuela, was that the situation that you left? This this horrible, it, it sounds almost like something out of a dystopian futuristic novel where you can't get the resources you need and the cops are all corrupt. That was that was what you left. That's exactly how it, how it was. Um, look, even the it sounds dystopian because it is, mm. but when you live in it and when you just get used to it, it's like the this uh, slow boiling water uh, of, the frog. of the frog. It's exactly like that. You just mm. get used to it and you don't notice uh, that it's so dystopian until you live it. Mm. And, you know, basic things like, you know, that they will never change. You know, I'll be very situationally aware in the street. Right. <laughs> or um, if somebody's making a line, you always wonder what's happening there because that's that's how it was in Venezuela. If there's a mm. line, then there's something valuable people are, are seeking. Right. Um, so it changes you and you have to slowly uh, grow out of that. Mm. So it's been a few years since you've left Venezuela. What does it look like now in 2021? Yeah. Venezuela has changed um, some things for the better, some things for the worse. Um, 
for the worse is that the regime is much more uh, powerful and mm. much more um, politically cemented. And with that, I don't mean popular. Yeah. <laughs> the, that's the, the opposite. They're much less popular. They're, they're not popular at all. Uh, they're not a democratic regime, right? Um, but they have a lot of uh, resources and, and they, they're able to stay in power because they became a drug cartel. Mm. Um, now there's no oil industry. It was state-owned. It was destroyed after so many years of nationalization. And so the government is in power because they are a gang uh, that has the guns and that profits of drug trafficking to the United States, to Europe, um, and, th and that's why they don't have any incentive to leave. Uh, for the better is that even though we have had hyperinflation for very long, Venezuela is on track to become one of the longest hyperinflation in history, um, if, even if not the, the highest, but, but the longest. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, people have switched to use U.S. dollars. Mm. And now in the street, most transactions are done in U.S. dollars in cash or in Colombian pesos. And that has allowed a segment of the population, maybe half or more, to get protected from inflation. Mm. So that, that's a good development. Okay. You mentioned this anecdote where your aunt was kidnapped yes. and the police officer was one of the kidnappers, which, I mean, it just is, is mind-boggling. I can't even imagine that happening in America. Do you have any other anecdotes that you might be able to share with us about sort of daily life under socialism in Venezuela? Yeah. Um, look, uh, I remember in my, um, my, my building, my dad was the president of the um, like homeowners association. Yeah. yeah. And because we had like a water tank that was part of, of the community, um, when there was no water coming from the street, we would have to ration it. Mm -hmm. um, because my dad was in the Homeowners Association, he basically got to set the rationing water schedule. Imagine how messed up it is that you have to choose for a community when they're going to be able to shower yeah. or wash the dishes or, or wash their clothes. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what he had to do for a very long time. Another thing is that my mom, to supplement her income, we used to have a gas station, um, but that income, you know, fell down drastically because of inflation, because the government took over the oil industry. Um, and we were making just, you know, less than $100 a month from that. And by 2016, 2015. And so my mom started uh, making chocolates at home, like bonbons for parties, yeah. communions, marriages, usually religious events. And chocolate was government regulated. Uh, you know, you have to protect the people from high chocolate prices, like <laughs> from prices of everything. And, you know, you don't want these evil businesses to make profits. That's right, the logic right. of the government. Uh, because inflation is not the government's fault, according to the mm. regime. Just like, you know, we hear now in the United States, it's not the government's fault. It's the businesses right, who are greedy, right? right? I, where, where else have I heard that now? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Um, and so they regulated that and there was no chocolate. My mom had to buy chocolate illegally. Mm. And so imagine having to hide chocolate in bags as if it was drugs. Right, right. And we had to hide it in, in the back of the car, below the seats. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but that was normal for us. And you and you tell that to an American and you think you're crazy. Right. No, I mean, psychologically speaking, that does sound like it would impact you very differently when you think about, I mean, this the story with your dad where he had to decide who gets the water and who doesn't. Your mom has to treat chocolate like it's, you know, cocaine or something illegal. Um, psychologically speaking, how did you find the, the citizens of Venezuela reacted to this type of socialism? Well, I, I, it's created a, a lot of suspicion. Uh, you know, Venezuela was a very um, friendly country. Mm. And, you know, of course, uh, like the rest of Latin America, it's a very outgoing population. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I really liked. But all the crime, all the 
uh, pitting people against each other because of shortages, right? The, it creates a finite resource situation where you have to fight with other people for the things that are available, mm -hmm. um, for the spot in the line, for the last toilet paper package in the right. supermarket. Uh, people have fought and died because of that. And so it created a lot of distrust. And, and now you just don't see the same things that you see maybe in the American Midwest where people just say, hey, how are you? How's right. it going? Mm -hmm. Good morning. That's not happening anymore. Um, and that's a very sad thing, right? It, it, it shows how economic policy can change culture as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I am always so curious about when I see examples of country that have socialist uh, tendencies now is what they were like before, because obviously Venezuela wasn't always socialist. So what was pre-socialism Venezuela like? Yeah, well, I can tell you, especially from my, my parents and my grandparents' experience, right? Because I was born and, and this regime started to be in power the, the month after I was born. Mm -hmm. um, Chavez got into office the month, he assumed office in February 1999. And my my grandparents were dirt poor. They were born in Spain and Italy in the 1930s, where they were born. Um, they immigrated to Venezuela in the 1950s. And Venezuela was in the fourth richest country on the planet, mm. um, while they, you know, didn't even finish elementary school. Mm -hmm. And yet they were able to wash cars for a living, uh, clean homes, uh, make shoes. Uh, the, the, my, my Italian grand grandparents, they were the ones who made shoes, you know, very Italian, stereotypical, <laughs> very true. Uh, every immigrant group had their own business. You know, the Portuguese were <laughs> into supermarkets, right, the, right. the Spanish had bakeries, the Italian shoe stores, and, and that's how it worked. And, um, you know, they did very well. They sent their kids, my parents, to college. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a huge generational jump in wealth. Uh, and they were in the middle class. Um, my parents, when I was born, were also very well off, uh, mm -hmm. you know, making a few thousand dollars a month like most American families do. Mm -hmm. And and that totally changed. Um, Venezuela was a country that welcomed people from all over the world, not just Europe. You know, Colombians were the biggest immigrant group in Venezuela. Uh, we had people from the rest of Latin America because Venezuela was one of the few democracies in the whole region. Mm. Everybody else was under a military dictatorship. Mm. Um, and, and so all the political refugees went to Venezuela. Right. And that created a cultural democracy, right? Um, but Venezuela slowly declined, really, even before mm. Chavez. Um, the, the successively democratically elected governments expanded government power. The economy was not doing well by the time Chavez got elected. And that's why he got elected. Right. These things don't happen in a vacuum. Mm. You know, if your country's doing well, nobody's going to come and elect Fidel Castro. Right, right. right. So, so things have to go wrong for that to happen in the first place. So you, you mentioned that things were going wrong and on decline, and this was because the government was expanding its power. So was socialism sort of on the menu even before Chavez took power, or was this a sort of Chavezism that he, he instituted socialism in Venezuela? It, expansive government was definitely the agenda before Chavez. Uh, I mean, oil was nationalized officially first in 1976. Mm. That is over 20 years before Chavez got into power. Right. Um, and then, you know, uh, the oil industry was failing. And then in the 90s, they reprivatized the oil industry. It was too late. Uh, the government spent so much money and there was even high inflation before Chavez. But when I say high inflation before Chavez is that there was a, a year when there was a banking crisis and some banks went broke because we didn't have what the U.S. has now uh, after the Great Depression, which is the FDIC, right? Right, which is, you know, bank insurance. Yeah. Um, that, that didn't exist in Venezuela until the 90s. And so you can imagine that there would be bank runs and there yeah. were bank runs. Yeah. 
Um, and that there was a year in Venezuela in the 90s where there was 100% inflation, mm. which is incredibly high, right? It's doubling prices in a year. But now that's the menu every week mm. in Venezuela. They double yeah. every week. So, so it looks like a joke. Right. Um, and so, yes, th those policies led to a disaster that then led to people trusting into somebody who, who they never should have trusted, which was Hugo Chavez. So, I mean, Hugo Chavez is sort of, you cannot separate the, the wrath of socialism in Venezuela without talking about Hugo Chavez. So your experience with Hugo Chavez, how would you describe it? Sort of like in Hugo Chavez's government or Venezuela, tell me more about that. He, he was uh, an egomaniac, narcissist, um, power-hungry, horrible individual um, who was very good friends with Fidel Castro from the beginning. He had attempted a coup in 1992 in Venezuela, seven years before he got into power democratically. Mm. Uh, he was in the military. He was a lieutenant and in the army, and he organized some members of the military to try to overthrow the democratic government in 1992 and what was called El Caracaso. And um, he flew planes, threw bombs, <laughs> drove tanks through the cities and killed people. Mm. And he went to jail. Uh, but the big mistake that Venezuela's um, elected elite did was that they pardoned him mm. after that. In the, the following president, in the, 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 the person who preceded Chavez, uh, Rafael Caldera, who he, he passed away a long, long ago, um, he pardoned him. He gave him a presidential pardon, and that's why he was able to run for office. Interesting. Um, and then people voted for a murder, mm. right? Imagine how bad things have to go that people will be willing to trust somebody like that. And so that's who, who Chavez was. Um, every year he would, uh, well, not every year, but like um, it successively happened more and more. But uh, in Venezuela, the government had the authority to put the president on TV anytime that they wanted. Imagine that Joe Biden was able to just appear on your TV whenever he could. Yeah. That that happens in Venezuela uh, uh -huh. all the time. And Chavez started doing then a Sunday show where he would appear on your TV every Sunday, then sometimes unexpected. And, and he would talk for hours. Yeah. Hours straight. People thought that he must have been on some kind of drug because this is impossible. Mm. And and he did. And it, it was that um, culture of, of the man, right? Culture of, um, the cult of personality, cult of personality. That's it. That's a word. No, I mean it, I remember when I was younger watching videos of Hugo Chavez and I believe it was then president Bush. He would just criticize Bush over and over and over again. And I'm curious that Hugo Chavez seemed so anti-American. What was the average Venezuelans view of the United States? Yeah. The the Venezuela had always been a U.S. ally before Chavez. Uh, during Chavez, he changed that a lot, uh, especially when he was popular at the start. And so a lot of the population turned, you know, against the United States. And because of what he said, uh, lately that totally changed, right? Because the only country that has stood by Venezuelans um, as the regime has massacred our population has been the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that totally changed. And now it's the opposite, right? The U.S. is a very popular government. There are polls that are that have been done, and R Russia is very unpopular among Venezuelans. China is very unpopular. Cuba is the least popular yeah. country among Venezuelans, and America is the most popular. is the, the most favored, um, and that's why Venezuelans want to come to America, and that's why Venezuelans, uh, you know, don't don't want the regime to continue. So, 
we've been discussing this entire conversation about how horrible socialism made Venezuela. Venezuela was a prosperous, free society. There were good things. It was the fourth richest country in the world. Um, And then all of that changed as a result of socialism. Now in America, we have young people who look at socialism as the Bernie Sanders style, the government gives me free stuff. How did we get this wrong? Where Where did we go wrong on this? We have been going wrong because the the socialism that's happening here is just like in, in every other country in the world. And it comes from I, I think it comes from envy mm. uh, and it comes from a lack of teaching good values to, to children when they're young. Um, you know, we know envy is a capital sin, uh, but it's also a natural feeling among yeah. humans. Mm. And it is one that we have to fight because it's a bad one to have. Uh, we shouldn't feel envy, but we should feel admiration. Right. Or we should uh, feel, you know, how 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 do I get there? Or, or you know, um, you know, seek mentorship, things like that. But not, you know, oh, you shouldn't have this. You don't deserve it mm. if you earned it, you know, rightfully. Um, and and many people in this country are don't feel that way. Many people in this country think that billionaires shouldn't exist for the sake of them not existing. I'm not saying that, you know. People can't do bad things and, and be corrupt and earn things in the wrong way. That's mm. That, of course, shouldn't happen. Right. But if somebody earned your money voluntarily by offering you a product, that person deserves what he got. And mm. you gave it to him voluntarily. Then that that is totally fair. And we need to teach that. Mm. Um, and here in the U.S., I also see that in Venezuela, it was all class warfare, right? Um the, the discourse was, you know, the rich against the poor. They haven't just done that in the U.S. because that's not enough. I think mm. that the reason is that this country is very pro-entrepreneurial, very, very pro, you know, people want to do better. Right. Uh, people want their children to do better. People want to be rich in right, this country. Right, right. Chavez used to say being rich is bad. Well, he carried a Rolex uh, and clock, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and so uh, people want to be rich in this country, and that's a good thing. But the left has exploited America's weakness with race, mm. with, with sex, and they want to pit us against each other on those lines. And, and so that's why you see all these Marxists uh, saying that capitalism is bad for minorities or mm. capitalism is bad for women. Um, I don't know if you saw this article saying that you know, women used to have uh, better sexual relations in the Soviet Union yeah. than, than in the United States. Like, what is going on? What are we talking about? This is a genocidal regime. Right, right. Um, and, and so they, they have used that, and we need to fight back against that. So how then do you explain socialism to young Americans who think it is, I get free stuff from the government? Yeah. I think that you explain two things. One, the, the firsthand experience of people who have lived in socialist countries, right? Venezuela, Cuba, you know, China. Then they'll say, you know, maybe it's just the Nordic countries. Okay. Let's explain what the Nordic countries do um, to children in schools. You know, even bring people from you know, Norway or Sweden if, if that need be. But the truth is that the democratic platform, the democratic socialists of this country do not believe in turning us into Norway. They do not want to propose those things. Uh, it's like, I don't know if you've seen these interviews when people, they, they ask young people, um, oh, Bernie Sanders is proposing this thing and then they describe the, the Trump tax cuts. Right. And then they say, oh, yes, this is so great. And they're like, actually, this is Donald Trump's proposal. Mm. So obviously, this is not grounded in many cases in policies. Mm. It's grounded in some sort of feeling against a, pers- a person mm-hmm. or against the party. Um and we need to take that away from, and I, I think it's at home that you can do that really. Yes, you know, you can educate people in schools and that's very important, 
But the primary educators, the primary transfers of values are parents, children. Mm. Nobody has better trust with their children than their own parents. Nobody should have better than their own parents. And so I think that it is up to parents to really uh, change that in their children's minds. So it's it's up to us almost to educate our right. children a little bit more about, about um, socialism. I'm curious, as somebody that has lived through the horrors of socialism, when you hear people say, I want socialism here, how does that make you feel? You know, it scares me. Um, you know, I... Right now, you know, I'm a PhD student at Columbia University. Mm. And right now, the biggest strike in the country is happening at Columbia University. It is some of the grad students. Um, I'm not on strike. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope not. (laughs) No. Uh, And they posted this picture yesterday where uh, the Marxists, the revolutionary committee or something, went Mm. to the picket line with them. And they had these pictures of the hammer and the sickle. Mm. Uh, You know, the revolution is coming or something like that. And that's what the union was standing for. Mm. You know, of course, why do you wonder I'm not striking? You know, I don't stand for that. Um, so, but what's happening here? The most counter-revolutionary thing you can do is live a normal life, mm. is work. That's, that, they get angry at that fact. They get angry at the fact that you, you know, uh, send your kids to a different school of your choice. They get angry at the fact that you homeschool them. They get angry at the fact that you don't wear masks. They get angry at, at everything you do that, that is what you believe in, that you teach religion. Mm. And so we need to keep doing that. Mm. Um, and, and yes, you know, it scares me that some people think that way. But it also gives me hope that there are so many Americans who think the opposite. We didn't have this in Venezuela. Mm. In Venezuela, there was no conservative movement like this. In Venezuela, there was no movement that had, uh, you know, such a long precedent in this country since its independence for freedom. Venezuela had just been a 40-year democracy mm. by the time Chavez got elected. Um, so, so I think that we have a th- big threat in front of us, but we also have a lot of things going for us that nobody else has. Mm. As we begin to wrap up this interview, I'm curious, as we've been talking, it's been ruminating around in my head that a lot of the things that we're seeing happen in Venezuela seem to start to be happening here, where a fully functional democracy can go from this place of strength and power to a position like Venezuela is in currently. Do you see a lot of what's happening in Venezuela happening here? Yeah, I mean, now with... um I think that especially after the COVID crisis, a lot of people have have seen that the the politicians and even everyday people are really tiny tyrants, Mm. I call them. Uh, They, as soon as they taste some power, they want to exercise it upon Mm. you. And and it's sad. It's happened with the COVID restrictions. It's happened, except for them, you know, they they have their own rules. Uh, It's happened with with government regulations for a very long time. and, and it seems like there's a, a two-tiered justice system, right? Mm. It's for the, the regular people and then for the well-connected. And that has to change. Um, and we can change it because most people are not the well-connected. Yeah. Um, uh, we just need to give that a priority. Uh, as I said, you know, we have a lot of good things going for us, and that is you know, our constitution. We have a, a very large uh, contingent of Americans who believe in freedom, who believe in the constitution, who believe in conservative values, and nobody else has said that. So we really need to take advantage of it. Okay. Well, 
Daniel, if people want to read more of your work or learn more about socialism in Venezuela or other places, where do you recommend that they look? Yeah, well, go to my website. Uh, that is uh, DanielDiMartino.com. Uh, I have all my articles, interviews, videos. Um, I, I've, I, you know, I, I come up with now new content, especially related to economics and economics of immigration, which is my area of specialty in the PhD program. Um, and then also my Twitter, uh, which is just at DanielDiMartino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very active on, on Twitter and, and social media. Excellent. Well, that was Daniel DiMartino, a Venezuelan-born freedom activist who speaks about his personal experience with the horrible consequences of socialism, as well as a senior contributor at Young Voices. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Doug. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.